Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, that we all know uh, the words of that song and not just know the words to sing it, uh, but know those words uh, that would be in our heart, uh, that our life is is purchased uh, by you, Jesus. I mean, I, I, I pray that because I, I feel like uh, so many, including myself, uh, often uh, don't get that. And, and the truth is, uh, without you, Jesus, uh, we are, uh, we're deserving of death and hell. Uh, that's could be a tough message. Uh, but because of you, we have life. Uh, you have saved us. You've saved us in every way, even if we don't realize it. So I pray that uh, this place uh, might be a place where we could realize it more through your word, not just through your word, and not just through a worship service, through community, uh, through uh, people mentoring and discipling others in, in love and compassion, uh, but also in knowledge and uh, in teaching and instruction in mentoring, shepherding. I pray that, that grows because there's such a need for it just in this community, in the community of the church, in the neighborhoods surrounding the church. We're lost, and maybe if we're not lost in terms of salvation, we're lost in dreams and ambitions and pride and, like, who likes us and approval and, and money and identity. Help us, Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord Jesus, as we, as we grow, but as we also fight the enemy who attacks Lead us to that knowledge that, that our soul is purchased by, by your blood. And, uh, and because of that, we have everything and, uh, and everything else is, um, really matters little in comparison to that. May we know that truly, deeply. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Hey, thank you all for praying. Have a seat, please. Uh, you can take your Bibles if you have them. Turn to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. Uh, we, uh, we've been looking at a month uh, in Jonah, and I, I tell you what, it's just nice to see the sun. I mean, amen? Good grief. <laughs> I mean, I, I, and I'm, I'm the type who kind of likes an occasional rainy day to sit in and read, but man, <laughs> day after day, uh, and the mugginess. But uh, hey, we praise God for the rain. He brings the rain. Amen? Amen? I mean, come on. Amen? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Okay. Uh, anyway, so he does bring the rain, and, and we do praise him uh, for all his, his gifts. Something else I do want to say, we're moving into, um, into Lent. Lent's coming up. And you're going to be hearing more about Lent. Uh, it, it's more of a traditional time, I'll say that, in the, in the life of the church. So there's going to be an Ash Wednesday service. That's not this Wednesday, but it would start next Wednesday at 6 uh, and then as we move through Lent, we'll be, we'll be doing different things in the service, uh, probably some more uh, traditional things, let me just say that, uh, that we may not normally do. Uh, but also, we'll, that will lead up to a Monday Thursday time of communion and Good Friday and then Easter morning. And so, even though it's not Lent yet, it, it's close, and I'd love you to be thinking and praying and, and really take this, this journey through Lent together as a church so we'll talk more about it next Sunday, but, but it is coming up, and I say that as you're turning in your Bible. So let's, 
Let's read Jonah 3, and I'm actually going to read through Jonah chapter 4, verse 4. It's short chapters. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now, Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. God saw their actions that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled down to Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? All right, let's, uh, let's stop there. Uh, we, we've been in Jonah for just a month. It's four chapters, four Sundays. Uh, most of us may, may know Jonah, have learned about Jonah, as you know, swallowed by the fish, in the belly of fish. So we're past that now. And he was spat out of the fish. He followed God to Nineveh. And looks like good things are happening to the Ninevites, uh, not to Jonah, which is interesting. Uh, we'll come back to that. But, but first, uh, some of you remember the first sermon I preached this year. Uh, it wasn't the first sermon of the year, but the first sermon I preached. I talked about what I wanted to see for the life of Bellwether Community Church. That's what I wanted to see with or without me, too, by the way. uh, That I'd like to see supernatural revival in the life of this church. And I talked about it as uh, something that is both uh, spiritual, supernatural, uh, a desire. I actually think I used the word uncontrollable. Like you can't really plan it. You can't organize it. So, I preached that and that was, we were praying for the life of this church. So this, this passage convicted me to kind of go a step further and talk about, well, how does that happen? Because it was a spiritual or supernatural, and revival is a word we all know. I mean, we're, we're pretty much all churched. I mean, like I grew up going to, quote, revivals that were organized. Uh, since then, though, I've, I've read a lot uh, about revivals uh, throughout uh, church history, and, and they, they're definitely real. Uh, they're definitely by the Lord. And so, you know, I, 
introduced the deacons to y'all earlier. So we have deacons. Uh, and they organize and they plan and they serve and they try to grow ministries here. Uh, but, you know, deacons don't, let me just say this, no offense, deacons. Deacons don't, like, formally produce revival. Uh, we have elders, as y'all know. Uh, elders are called to, to shepherd the church. Elders don't produce revival. No offense to us as elders. We have, we have ministries, we have staff, we have students, we have children. Uh, we have missions. I've seen local, uh, global, we're starting to organize for Honduras this year, you know, all that. But, but those, pro, those are all like programs. Those, those don't like produce revival. Those don't start uh, revival. So what, what would? Uh, what does? What starts revival? Uh, in, in revival and reading about revivals in church history, and I know uh, some of you probably have not read, some of you may have, one of, the, one of the best things about actually the Methodist church is that it was really birthed in a huge, great, supernatural, uh, Spirit of God-led revival that, that was uncontrollable. And uh, the Methodist church was birthed out of that uh, with John Wesley and, uh, and his brother Charles. So what happens in revival? I'd say three things happen. And it can be in a life of a church. It can be a life in a city, churches together. Three things happen in revival. Uh, first off, let me say this, nominal, nominal church members, that's a, and that's a key phrase right there, uh, become saved. Okay? And I say that because oftentimes, and I'm not saying in this church, but I'm saying it is possible in this church, Impossible in every church. That people are like kind of grown up and like, yeah, I know, I know the grace of God, you know, I know the I know the mercies of God in my life, uh, and, and they they realize they're nominal church members. They realize they really don't. Um, they might be singing the song we just sang. Like, I don't know what that's about, but I'm a Christian, right? Well, I mean, I'd never say I'm never going to say you you are you're not a Christian. You're I mean, your heart says that, and the Lord sees that. But nominal church members uh, see that they they may not know about the grace of God. And so they become really, truly saved. That happens in revival. Uh, Second thing that happens is sleepy Christians wake up. Okay, Sleepy Christians wake up. And that maybe they've just been dormant, you know, in their life and just kind of maybe coasting and just going through the motions, but they know the grace of God, and they've been, you know, they're, they're saved, they're, they're Christians, and they, they wake up, and the Spirit of God wakes them up. And when those things are combined, the third thing happens is that outsiders see the church from the outside looking in, and they're like, you know, what's going on here? And there is this supernatural, unplanned attraction in, like, you know, people's lives are being changed. And so people who, you know, let's say, you know, thought they were Christian, but yet held so much bitterness and unforgiveness and gossiped all the time. What if somebody like that just knocks on your door to the person they're gossiping to and is like, you know, I've had totally bitter feelings and totally hard feelings and gossip like off the charts about you. And, you know, it's on me and I'm just asking for your forgiveness. And if you don't, I totally understand. But I do love you as a brother or, or sister in Christ. They see things like that, I believe. 
Because that just doesn't happen, you know? And that's just one example of things that do happen all the time. Talking about gossip. Nominal Christians saved. Sleepy Christians wake up. And outsiders say, like, wow, this is the real deal. Outsiders say, like, you know, I don't go to the church because they're all hypocrites. Or, you know, I never sat in foot of the church. And they see things that are so real and awakening in them that they're drawn to it. That doesn't mean they come and join, but they're drawn to it. They see the service in the community. They see the sense of community and connection in the life of the church. They see the love they have for one another. They see the love they have for the city. All those things and more happen in revival. So how does it start? Well, this passage in Jonah could tell us a few things about how it starts. Uh, First, so if you look, and that's what I'm going to come back to over and over again today in our time remaining. How, How would revival start? And some of you say, well, the Spirit of God just comes down. Yeah, yeah, the Spirit of God, and he just, you know, just selects or chooses maybe a church, maybe a person, you know, maybe a city. You just, yes, there's part of that, but some things, let me, I'm telling you, some things in the life of individuals like you and me have to take place for the field to be ready. And if that doesn't take place, I mean, I, it's, it's, I believe revival does not happen. You mean saved, go to heaven, run your church programs, all that. But So, we'll keep coming back to that, but what would this passage in Jonah say? Jonah 3. Well, the first thing it would say, say is that, hey, God can use anything. You know, look up in verse 4. Uh, verse 4, Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. Verse 5, then the people of Nineveh believed God. Okay, my point is, you know, I, I hear so many folks talk about you know, I want to like witness or I want to invite somebody to church. Or I want to really speak into the life of somebody who knows not a Christian. I don't know what to say. It's going to be weird. It's going to be awkward. You know, God can use anything, okay? You just read that chapter. He comes up and said, the city of Nineveh will be demolished. And the people of Nineveh turned and believed. You seeing that? The city of Nineveh will be demolished. I mean, that's not like, it's not like seeker-friendly stuff here. And then the people of Nineveh believed in God. God can use anything you say. Uh, and, and if you don't believe that, if you're like, man, you're just quacked or you're just like, that's fine. <laughs> but I see a big God. And God can use anything that you say uh, for evangelism, for conversion, because the work is the Lord's. Uh, second thing is here, revival is both, here's a big word for it, sociological and spiritual. Uh, why, do I, why do I say that? Well, in Nineveh, okay, uh, before Jonah came, it's a little history, but I love history. Before Jonah came, uh, Nineveh was in Assyria. Nineveh was a very bad place. They, uh, they tortured, killed one another. Uh, people like, very bad, very bad. But there had been several plagues throughout Assyria. And historians, church historians, biblical historians believe that that was really grease in the tracks for Jonah to come in. And so they say, well, there was kind of a sociological explanation to them being ready to turn to the Lord. Uh, But then it's also spiritual. I mean, God has to do something. Something has to happen. It's not just, you know, things in history or God orchestrating events. I'll give you another example. In 1907, uh, in Korea, there was a Bible conference. And out of that, there was a huge revival uh, that broke forth in in the nation of, of Korea. Now, part of what happened through the revival was really exactly, like I said other, 
uh, a little bit earlier about going to the door, knocking, asking forgiveness. Because they would go to other people of different uh, ethnicities, particularly Japanese, whom they hated, and sought forgiveness. Uh, and there was a lot of reconciliation amongst, like, really, really strong enemies who had, like, not just gossiped about one another, like, fought one another over centuries and been much conflict. So, looking back, church historians would say there was a sociological reason for that because there were some peace accords that came about in 1904 and 1907 that began to bring, at that time at least, Japan and Korea together. But there was also something spiritually that happened at the Bible conference. And so it's, it's cool to me how God orchestrates some historical events, uh, but also just the supernatural work of, of the Lord comes together. So revival is both sociological and spiritual. Third thing that we could see in here is they could turn to God, and you need to listen to me on this, they could turn to God without believing in him as Lord. Because most people, most Old Testament scholars do not think the Ninevites, when Jonah came, were immediately saved as we think of that word. Okay? And the reason is, is because when, when they used the word God here, it was the, it was the word Elohim, which means a belief in God, but not Yahweh, which was personal Lord and Savior. And so, in revival too, some people can begin turning to the Lord, but may not initially know Him as Lord and Savior. But they're, they're starting to turn. And then, the fourth thing that we could see here, and that also happens in revival, is that some people will not like it. Some people just won't like it. They don't, they don't want to see it happening. They don't believe it. They, they'll push back. And yes, it's the enemy. I've mentioned that already, him already in the service a couple times. And, and also sin and pride and all that. Some people won't like it. And the interesting thing here, the person who, who's the person who didn't like it here? It's Jonah. It's jo- who, who the whole book is about, the letter's about. Jonah did not like it that Nineveh was coming to revival, was turning to the Lord. So what does that tell us too about like how revival could start, how revival could start here? Because, I mean, Jonah says, I mean, even verse 4 is like Jonah was displeased. He says Jonah became furious. He even said, verse 3, Lord, take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. Jonah wanted to die. People were turning to the Lord, and Jonah here, the, quote, hero, who was really not the hero, uh, wants to die. What, what could this tell us? What could this tell us about your life? What does it tell us about the life of our church? What does it tell us about revival? How uh, revival starts? Well, here, you got to think about this. Anybody ever seen the movie The Sixth Sense? Love that movie. Sixth Sense. Nobody's seen it? One, two. Who's seen the movie Sixth Sense? So you know what I'm talking about. Okay, so I love, I mean, one thing, I love really good storytelling. And really good storytelling, here, here's what happens. You're assuming something all the way through. And then about maybe two-thirds or three-quarters, or maybe at the end, something changed. Like, everything I assumed is wrong about the movie. There's, there's a great book, if you like murder mysteries, I'd recommend it, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. It's an old Agatha Christie. Same thing. You're assuming, you're assuming, you're assuming, and bam, hits you. It's like everything was off. Everything was wrong. 
Uh, there's another movie. I didn't know if I'd mention it or not, but I went Memento. Anybody seen that? Memento? Some? Yeah. Same thing. That's a great story. You're assuming he's drawing you, and then it just, it's different. And you can never uh, watch the movie the second time or, th- or any other time the same. The book of Jonah is just like that. Like, what do you mean? Book of, you're like, the book of Jonah is not as good as Sixth Sense or Memento or, you know, so, no. I know. I know how, how we think. No, it's much, much better. Uh, it's God's word. Because here's what happens in Jonah. God calls him. He refuses. He runs. Goes to the ship. Storm comes. Throws him overboard. Fish swallows him. We all know that from Sunday school. He repents. He relents. Fish spits him out. He follows the Lord. He goes to Nineveh. Nineveh's come to turn to the Lord. And chapter 3 should end, or maybe, um, well, no, not even start a new chapter. Chapter 3, verse 11, should say, And Jonah left Nineveh rejoicing to his home country. You know, he wins, he's here, and it doesn't at all. Instead, it's Jonah's displeased and furious. Why? And like, why? What has that to do with revival? And what does that have to do with how revival would start? And what would that even have to do with how revival would start in the life of this church? You might say. Jonah, you have to think about his motives. And I'd ask you to consider your motives. Your motives in like your Christian life. Your motives in things that you do. Mission trips or groups or coming to church. For Jonah, we initially read this, and our assumption, if you're just reading for the first time, if you've never, and everybody, it's hard to do because we know the, the story. But we think he runs, and we think, well, he's afraid, you know. I mean, the Ninevites are bad, bad people, and they kill people, and it's just him. He's just afraid, so he runs. But then we get to verse 4, and we see the real motive. And the real motive in Jonah's heart is not fear. It's not fear, it's not like, it's not even, uh, it's not even like, I know better than you, God. Uh, The real motive that he didn't go is hate. He hates the Ninevites. Hates them, and he still does in verse 4. Even though we went through, he's saved in chapter 2, he hates them. What do you mean he, he hates them? Well, he has a lot of national pride in Israel. He has a lot of racial pride. Uh, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, that his first, you know, his first identity is that he's a Hebrew. Not that he's, he believes the Lord. That was second to him. He doesn't want to see. He, he's putting himself up and he's elevating his own people. The Hebrews like, we're the chosen. I could use some terms. That we're, we're the chosen ones. We are better than. And it drives his identity in saying that, you know, they're, they're not. They are, they're definitely the other. And they don't have the Lord's call, the Lord's grace. And I don't want him to. And then, like, verse, uh, chapter 4, he's like, man, I knew it. I knew you were gracious and compassionate. I knew you were good. I knew you'd do this. That's why I didn't want to go. He didn't want to see it. He did not want to see a people come to revival. He did not want to see a city come to the Lord. He, he, he did not want to see the kingdom grow, to use church language. How could somebody do that, we think? Easy. Easy. In our terms, I've seen, um, you know, the motives of people's, uh, people's hearts. The motives of people's heart. And maybe you felt this sometimes. Uh, the motives of saying, you know, I, I don't want them to win or do well because I want to feel like I'm above them. 
And so if they do well, then like that hurts my, my pride and my identity. Uh, unfortunately, in like, in like church world, which we're in, and church buckle belt, which we're in and all that, I mean, I know of motives of like, I don't want, people never would say this, but they, they do it in very manipulative ways. Like, I don't want that church uh, to succeed because I want my church to succeed and I want revival to come here and I can like say things about that church or this other church and don't want to see revival come there. Nobody ever say that because they would look horrible. And they're, you know, all of our hearts are horrible. I'll say that because it's sin and that's biblical too. Going back, how does this start Revival. For us, how revival starts, you've got to, and this is, this is important for me, for you, for a revival to start anywhere, you gotta smash your idols. You gotta smash them. Smash your idols. The reason church is here, in this context, and in a lot of places, we don't see revival in individual churches, don't see revival in cities, church together, and, and often, I mean, I heard somebody say, you know, it's, I mean, we see more revival, true revival, biblical revival, in places outside the U.S. It's because there's so many idols that we've got. Idols of identity, idols of approval, idols of success, idols of family, idols of children, idols of marriage. What's an idol? You think idol, yeah, it's like a statue, you know. An idol is simple. It's just a good thing. It's a good thing that becomes your ultimate thing. It's a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. Here's how you know your idols. You're like, oh, okay, what are my idols? Here, it's very simple. It's, it's really hard to know what someone's purpose is in life. Like, what's your purpose? Thinking about it. You can't really draw that out of a person. It's really hard. But, let me ask you, like, what's your nightmare? If you, know, if you identify your nightmares, you'll identify your idols. Put it this way. What if this was taken away and you were led to a point like Jonah where you said, I just don't want to live anymore. What's that? I know what it would be uh, for me and many men. It'd be a success, esteem, being known, approval. Like what, for some of you men, you take that away in your business, in your, in your field. Uh, take that away, it's gone. Gone, like no other chance. It's a nightmare. So no more respect. No more um, invitations for consultations, invitations for business deals, nothing. Is that your idol? Uh, for, that can be for women too. And excuse me just saying that for men, but, but naturally I've no more men who are wired that way. I'll just say that. Uh, women can often be um, being a wife, being, being a mom, What's your idol? Uh, Martin Luther, a guy that not all of you know, but really a brilliant dude and also a very simple dude, he said there's always a sin underneath the sin. And the sin under the sin is the first commandment and ten commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, God said. So the other nine commandments said we only break those when we break the first. As in we, we lie because we want approval so much we'll tell white lies. Or we won't even tell the whole truth because approval is our God. Uh, we'll, we'll cheat or we'll covet because that idol of financial wealth and identity in financial wealth is our God. That's the sin underneath the sin. So, you know, some other examples. 
you know, a big part of this is I want you to see this and really identify, like, what's your idol? And everybody here has them. And until that's really, until it, I mean, I'm just going to say, until a community kind of begins smashing their idols, I mean, they're Christians, and it's, but, you know, you know, and the reason I want this is I, I want to see significant joy in people's lives. That's really what I want. And so there's so many things hitting you and fighting for you called ambition, greed, my lust, throw that in there, um, gossip, approval, all that. And so think about what's my idol then? We're going to get to Jesus in a moment, but what's, what's that idol? And the other thing I want to see is a significant impact made through this church for the kingdom locally and globally. And so this has to start revival. You've got to individually, you've got to identify your idol. Some example would be, so if, you are, uh, if you're dating and you fall in love, and man, like, it's great, it's awesome, it's wonderful, you're going to get married, rolling with it, and then you break up, okay? Well, either you handle it well, or if you're just devastated and just destroyed and all that, well, that, that relationship and the, and the idea of that was, was your idol. Uh, two... Uh, I, you know, I've counseled a lot of marriages and two uh, women that come to mind who honestly came to a point where they just couldn't stand their husband. And part of it was the impact that he was having on their children or child, okay? And counseling both of them. And one I would say was not much, I'd, I'd just say she's not that mature of a Christian. Uh, you know, their, their levels of maturity in, as Christians. And the other one I'd say is a highly mature Christian. So the one who is not a mature Christian, I kind of counsel them both the same way. Well, look, you've got to forgive. You've got to be open. You've got to talk through this. But you've got to forgive him in your heart. And she did that and, and moved into that, and, and the marriage began to heal and flourish. The other one who I'd say is, I thought was a really mature Christian. So you've got to forgive. He said all the right things, but there was not a forgiveness. Bitterness continued. Um, could not talk openly. Just he was, always, he was always just, you know, just... A sack of bad stuff, okay? And it never really healed. There was no reconciliation and uh, ended, just fractured the family. So what does that look like? Well, for, for one, you know, she didn't just functionally say Jesus was her savior. She's like, she had some work to do in her heart and she moved in to forgive. And the guy had done some bad things, I'll say. And the other one would say, you know, Jesus is my savior, but it's only functional. And she couldn't do the work in her heart because her primary identity and idol was really like uh, a good mom and that he was hurting the kids so much and, you know, the identity of what he had done wrong to her and just couldn't get over it, couldn't get over it. Uh, church, are there idols in church? Yes, tons of them, tons of idols in church. I'm not just talking about property, but yeah, that's an idol. If your idol is money, you kind of look around and it's like, well, how much they got here? Or how much do people have here who's here? Be an idol. If it's relationships, if it's social status, um, if it's you know a version of a country club, well, who's here? Well, if who's here, maybe this is the right place uh, for me. Uh, it, you know, if it's feeling like you want to have, hey, I just want to come and kind of get my shot and and know that I'm great, and yeah, I want to see that. Yeah, I hear Jesus saves. I know that, and just have as much fun you know as possible the rest of my life and rocking that out, then, then you'll look for, you know, a certain type of church. But that's still your idol, that idea. Tradition, family, again, these are good things. You know, I was raised in a traditional church. You're like, well, I kind of want my church to be like that because it's familiar and it's like my traditions and 
my family. Well, is that your idol? Idols in church all the time. And they, they, they hinder, I'm not saying you hinder, I'm not saying I hinder, but those idols hinder revival. And did for Jonah. I mean, he couldn't get past it. So what do we do? Last part. How do you start revival? You can start individually. You gotta do three things. Three things. This comes to Jesus. Three things. Talk about revival with an R, three R's. Recognize, replace, rejoice. If you're writing, and I hope you write those down. They have helped me tremendously in my life. Recognize your idols, which we've already talked about quite a bit. Replace them with Jesus. I'm gonna talk about that. Rejoice in Jesus. Talked about recognize your idols. I can't recognize them for you. I just know they're there. I know for men, for a lot, and even men in ministry, because I talk to them, it's the idol of success, okay? Uh, I, know, I know idols can be family. I know idols can be money, looks, approval, status, all of it. Identify it. Think about it. It's, it's holding you back from a revival in your life. It is. Recognize it. You know, what I try to, when you recognize it, I think what happens is, you know, a lot of us as Christians, and my wife will uh, remind me of this, you know, my job, I think pastor's job, is like, you know, there's this phrase, the penny, when the penny drops, when the penny drops, you've heard it? Heard it? Yes or no? If you've heard it, nod, please. Okay, the penny drop. that came from the old, you know, a Coke machine. And you'd put in your quarter and the Coke been there, and you, you know, you'd bang it, you'd bang it, and, you know, the Coke stuck, and then the penny drops, you know, and the Coke comes out. That's a lot of what people in ministry have to do, because as Christians, They'll, if the quarter is like, say, my response to the Lord and, and I'm in, and the, uh, the saving knowledge and like the real deal, the maturity of Christ is uh, in the Coke that comes out, we're, we're banging on the Coke machine, but hoping the penny will drop, and you'll see it, because a lot of folks, the penny had not dropped, and really idols are controlling them. Recognize that. So recognize also that maybe the penny hasn't dropped in my life. I'm not saying you're going to hell, okay? I can't, and honestly, I've talked to people about that. Like, well, you say, I say, what, from what I know in that person's life, he's safe. And I know that's the big conversation point down here. I'm not saying that. I'm saying for a lot of folks that I've, the penny hadn't really dropped. And idols will control their life. And it hinders personal revival, church revival, city revival, everything. It hinders the work of the Lord. Recognize it. Think about it. Second, replace, uh, replace. Whenever you're being tempted, thoughts of success, thoughts of approval, well, I'm, I'm shot down, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not getting what I deserve. I'm not getting what I deserve in that relationship, in that group. I'm not getting what I deserve in my job. I deserve more. I'm better than that. I'm not getting what I deserve in my marriage. My husband's a sack of, replace it, on the spot. I can't say this any clearer. I can say it louder, but I don't want to. On the spot, and this happened to me this week, on the spot, you need to say, if you're a Christian, Jesus Christ died for me, for me personally. If it were not for him, I deserve death and hell. I have everything, everything, in him, through him. You've got to replace and remind yourself that on the spot. Or those idols will control you. And they will hinder you. And they're good things, but they're not ultimate things. 
on the spot. I call it replacement theory. Do that. Uh, real quick, Genesis 29. Some of you may know it, some of you may not. Rachel, Rachel was who Jacob wanted to marry. He goes, Rachel's dad, Laban, said, I'll give you my daughter, but you've got to work seven years for me. Boy, you know, talk about you know, potential father-in-laws, you know, rethinking you know, your plans there. Working for daddy. You know, seven years. And the Bible said... Yeah, for Jacob, it seemed to him, the seven years, it seemed to him but a moment. He loved Rachel so much. Seeing the seven years just seemed like a moment. I use that because Jesus had everything. Jesus Christ, Son of God, had everything. Everything. Except one thing. One thing personally, one thing really corporately. He didn't have you. He didn't have you when he died on the cross. We were bound for somewhere else without him. Until you really, until you see Jesus as your Rachel, no way, until you see that you are Jesus' Rachel, and that's really what you, you were. He said, you know, I'll go for them. I'll take it for them. If you don't see that, if you don't see Jesus in that way, and I would say several of you don't, He'll never be your Rachel. It'd never be like, yeah, man, I'll, I'll go humbly. Uh, I don't, it's not about me. Take my name off. You say, like, man, it's not about my name. You can even say, like, I know it's crazy. Like, you don't even, I've, I've heard some Christians, I don't even care about a tombstone. I got or my name on it. I'm going to be in glory. It's not even about my name. I've heard Christians say that. Now, they were trying to be humble. <laughs> I mean, saying how humble they were, if you caught that. But it's not about your name. And you love Jesus so much. Until you know that you're his Rachel, I mean, he won't be your Rachel. So replace. I mean, recognize, replace, and the last thing, and the last story, rejoice. Rejoice. What do you mean about rejoicing? You mean like worship and standing? It's kind of a churchy word. No, what I'm saying, let me give you a story about rejoicing. I knew a younger girl, um, family friend, okay, doesn't go to church here, doesn't live here, doesn't live in Jackson. And good, deep family friend. I mean, not, you know, as they say, like a sister, but, you know. And went through some problems. Lives in a big city. I'm not going to say where. Went through some problems. Talked to her. So, you know, I got a real problem with men. I got a real problem with men. She was very honest. Like, I got to have, you know, almost like I got to have men in my life. Uh, and I, I need their affection. I need their, I need, you know, I want to be attracted, uh, attracted to them. I need men. And I go out to get men. Basically, that's what she said. And at a church where she was at, she came to know the Lord. And she told me uh, recently, she said, you know, I'll still go out. with friends. She had a big city. She goes out and, and I'll see a man, you know, and I'll know kind of what's going on. And, you know, in my, in my heart, in my mind, I think, you know, that's, that's who I was. Uh, but now... Uh, I speak Colossians 3 in my life. I rejoice, she said, in Colossians 3. What's Colossians 3? Colossians 3 says, My life is hidden with Christ in glory. That's the verse. My life is hidden in Christ in glory. So she rejoices. Like, that's who I was, but now my life is hidden in Christ uh, in glory. Can you rejoice like that? 
I hope you can. I want you to. Can you replace those things, those, uh, yeah, temptations, but really those idols with Christ? Can you recognize them? Can you begin to recognize them? I hope you can. I mean, if, if you don't, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm just saying God's not doing the abundant work that he could do in your life. I am saying that. And I want to see that individually and have a real Christian joy and that you and us together make a significant impact. So think about it, consider it. All Jesus has done for you on the spot right now. And he can produce revival in your life right now. And when he produces revival in your life right now, that revival starts in the life of a community, a family, a church. And I am going to tell you this. We're going through Jonah. Don't be like Jonah. <laughs> okay? Don't be like Jonah. Look to Christ. Rejoice in Christ. Say, my life is hidden in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that, uh, I, I pray for personal revival in people's lives because I think that uh, for so many, the penny has not dropped. And so I pray for that. I pray by the work of your spirit, by the power of your, um, by the power of your spirit, that that would occur. And they're, they're just, man, there's so many idols that, uh, that are good things. Uh, that can become ultimate things and sometimes can even become dark things. And so I just pray release from that captivity. From, I pray freedom. And I pray for revival. I do. I pray for revival in people's lives, but not just as individuals. I pray for revival here in one church. I pray for revival in other churches. I pray for revival in this city. You have planted us here. So may we see that. May we contribute to it and be open to it. But let us smash those idols and replace them with you, Jesus, and what you've done for us, knowing that if it wasn't for you, we would we deserve death and hell, and you've saved us in every way, every way. It's in your name we pray, amen.